Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back. Thursday, June 1st, 2023. One of the most critical epitaphs or epigrams of our age, I can't yet tell which, comes from the former Czech poet and leader and prisoner of conscience, Václav Havel. He wrote, The post-totalitarian system touches people at every step, but it does so with its ideological gloves on. This is why life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Government by bureaucracy is called popular government. The working class is enslaved in the name of the working class. The complete degradation of the individual is presented as his ultimate liberation. Depriving people of information is called making information available. The use of power to manipulate is called the public control of power, and the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing the legal code. The repression of culture is called developmental is called cultural development. The expansion of imperial influence is presented as support for the oppressed. The lack of free expression becomes the highest form of freedom. Farcical elections become the highest form of democracy, and banning independent thought becomes the most scientific of worldviews. Because the regime is captive to its own lies, it must falsify everything, he writes. It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics, it pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled police apparatus, it pretends to respect human rights, it pretends to persecute no one, it pretends to fear nothing, it pretends to pretend nothing. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they must behave as though they did, he concludes. You get the same idea, of course, throughout George Orwell's 1984. From the very opening to every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture repainted, every statue and street building renamed, every date altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the capital P party is always right. This is why I think the problem of the age is that 1984 has been accepted here as a how-to policy and procedure manual, as I say, more than a dystopian warning. These thoughts and quotes came to mind when I read about what leading critical race professor, lecturer, and profiteer Ibram X. Kendi has done. His most famous book is How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the most famous quote from that book is an echo from George Wallace, Governor Wallace, who famously said, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. What Kendi wrote in his book was this, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, close quote. The operative word I used here was, this is what he wrote. That's what was in Kendi's first edition of his book. Evidently, knowing no history, knowing not what he was echoing, 
a la George Wallace. He now has a new edition of his book, I guess he learned, and in that new edition, without comment or note, he has changed what he wrote. Now his book replaces the Wallace echo with the following, quote, The only remedy to negative racist discrimination that produces inequity is positive anti-racist discrimination that produces equity. The only remedy to past negative racist discrimination that has produced inequity is present positive anti-racist discrimination that produces equity. The only remedy to present negative racist discrimination toward inequity is future positive anti-racist discrimination toward equity. Close quote. Call it George Wallace Redux, but perhaps just stirred, not shaken, or meant to stir not shake society. He has now affixed an end to his efforts to justify discrimination based on race. Oh, it still amounts to the same thing, discrimination based on race, but now with a justification rather than the zealous claim of retribution. This kind of perversion of civil rights or atavism of the 1960s South for political purposes in our times has run us down a terribly noxious and perilous road, a road that was meant to be destroyed, not built, not strengthened, not lengthened, not expanded. When the NAACP was founded in 1911, its charter stated the purpose of its organization, quote, to promote equality of rights and eradicate caste or race prejudice among citizens of the United States, close quote. Critical race theory and Dr. Kendi do exactly the opposite. In fact, as you can see, they now support discrimination and prejudice if there is a subjective rationale for it. Well, There were subjective rationales for it in Nuremberg, too, which is why the whole civil rights effort of the 1960s was to bury it, not praise or justify it, if I may borrow from Shakespeare. It was in his brief to the Supreme Court in 1952 that Thurgood Marshall wrote, quote, Distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary, and so invidious that a state bound to defend the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them them in any public sphere, close quote. That is not the view of the critical race theorists or race mongers. They will argue instead, as Kendi and others do, that colorblindness is itself racist, as it ignores or turns one blind to color, which to them should in fact matter a great deal. Civil rights in the old double N, excuse me, civil rights in the old NAACP taught people were not different qualitatively or in any other important respect because of the color of their skin. Today's industry teaches just the opposite. And I, for one, despise that concept of thought, just as I despised the Nuremberg Laws when I first read them. You may recall during Amy Coney Barrett's nomination hearings, Kendi wrote the following of Professor, then Professor Barrett's two adopted Haitian children, quote, Some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized these savage children in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity, close quote. Kennedy only sees people for their race and cannot accept decency from anyone beyond the particulars of their race. And it's now well beyond the precincts of Boston University where Kendi professes. On the ABC Network show, The View, Sonny Hostin said this week that patriarchy in America is the fault of white women. Not women, white women. Not to isolate white women, Jane Fonda said in France this week, quote, it's good for us all to realize there would be no climate crisis if there were no racism. There would be no climate crisis if there was no patriarchy. A mindset that sees things in a hierarchical way, 
White men are the things that matter, and then everything else is at bottom. We have to arrest and jail those men, close quote. So we are now to arrest people because of their race? This would be of a piece with what Kira Fernandez, chief diversity officer at Target, said this week at a forum in Minneapolis, singling out a white woman in her audience, Fernandez being, in the parlance of our times, a person of color. And Fernandez telling this white woman in her audience the onus is on her as a white woman to use her voice because on the basis of her race, it would be given more weight in the workplace. The interesting thing to me is when you look to the people making these claims about the impossibility of success for minorities in this country is they seem to almost always come from people who earn high six and seven figure salaries, be it someone like Fernandez or Kendi or Hostin or Whoopi Goldberg or Al Sharpton. One has to wonder how did white supremacy and systemic racism let these people slip through? Well, I take us back to Vaclav Havel to generate whatever justifications they have for their race-based recriminatory and retributive policies. One quickly sees why, quote, life in the system is so thoroughly and permeated, so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. That is, after all, the only way it can succeed. You must understand, after all, freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength and war is peace. But ignorance is not strength. And it has been the lifelong effort of true and real racists to keep minorities from success by depriving them of education. Frederick Douglass and Thurgood Marshall both knew this well, which is why breaking down segregation and opposing CRT and 1619 type revisionist textbooks are of the same piece. It does no person any more than it does no group any favor to miseducate or to propagandize or to return us to a race consciousness that demeans human beings from being human beings and makes them mere creatures of their race, as if race dictates their thought that they can never escape their race. That is a race fetish that should have been buried by 1945 at the latest. That's why the whole effort at civil rights in America centered around eliminating race as characteristic of anything. This is why the whole effort at civil rights in America centered on good and solid education and equal schools and education opportunities for everyone, especially those who were subject to discrimination. See, for example, the Rosenwald schools are again Brown versus Board of Education, a decision held in the highest esteem by liberals in America, but only evidently in its form rather than its substance for to hold up the Brown versus Board substance on the left today would be to know the difference between real anti-racism and newfangled, propagandized, Orwellian and politicalized anti-racism, which is just retrograde racism all over again, a la George Wallace, just switching out the colors. The junk teaching foisted upon us by pedagogical and media indoctrinators and historical revisionists is not a compliment to civil rights. It's a reversal of them. What we have now with Kendi and the rest is instead a complement to an elimination of the concept of human decency, which is the concept of human achievement, which is the concept of humanity based on the important life of the mind. It wasn't we who took all that away. It wasn't we who said no more teaching of Western civilization and its arc of wars and pieces and slaveries and redemptions, imprisonments and freedoms. It wasn't we who removed the study of Frederick Douglass and taught that Abraham Lincoln didn't free the slaves. It wasn't we who tried to elevate the Confederate cause to a victor rather than a loser? It wasn't we who replaced Thurgood Marshall with Malcolm X? It wasn't we who presided over an attachment to a system which has destroyed the education achievements of decades past in both minority and majority communities? 
Shame on those who exploit race for politics and profit, and shame on those who encourage fear and anxiety in vulnerable populations for political purposes and lucre. I mean that. It is shameful. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, it is always a treat for me, as I know it is for you and the audience, when we get to be joined by uh, Professor Charles Kessler. Um, I was a student of his. I am still a student of his. I was in the classroom, and now I am uh, in, the, uh, in the general population, along with so many. He is, of course, the uh, editor at the Claremont Review of Books. Professor at Claremont McKenna College, his most recent book, Critical Reading, uh, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. And whenever a new issue of the Claremont Review of Books comes out, we have the editor of the Claremont Review of Books on to talk about it. Charles, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Seth. Uh you know, I, I count myself one of your students oh, please. as well. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you have better teachers than. That. By the way, Charles, I was just think I was listening to um, your old classmate Hugh Hewitt talking about going back to a Harvard reunion, uh-huh. and it dawned on me that about forty five years ago this week, you had a piece in National Review, uh, up from Modernity, I think it was called, talking about. Uh, what took place at uh, you guys' commencement. Is that is that English? <laughs> Your Hughes commencement when Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke there 45 years ago. Yes, that's right. Uh, as, I, as I've as i said uh, several times, it's uh, probably the most memorable commencement address of the 20th century. Probably. Uh, and that, that's a lot of commencement addresses yeah. <laughs> you know, to choose from. But the truth is, uh, I think it's the only truly... Um, a controversial one, and the only one that's remembered for its controversy and its truth. You, uh, it, it might be fun. I'm going to try and have Hugh on maybe next week. It might be fun to send you that audio and then have you back on. We're here to talk about the current CRB, <laughs> not 1978 <laughs> National Review, but it might be fun to, to see what thoughts are in the light of 45 years. You wrote at the end of your essay, I have it in front of me, Time for the West is Running Out. Uh, <laughs> how's, that, how's the sand in that hourglass looking to you these days? Well, <clears throat> yes, I say, I say it is running out, and maybe uh, faster than before. Yeah. Um, I mean, at, at, at that moment, of course, Solzhenitsyn was warning about the uh, rampant Soviet Union and yeah. that it was on the verge of winning the Cold War, which is to say that the West and America in particular was on the verge of losing mm-hmm. the Cold War. So in some ways, we're in a much better position than we were then because the Soviet Union doesn't exist, uh, even if Russia uh, and its own imperial foreign policy continues to be a problem for us. But, um, uh, yes, I would say, um, as a lot of people, very smart people, sort of sensed at the time, um, when the external threats uh, vanished, at least temporarily, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it, it just... It, it just shifted the emphasis to the internal threat, and uh, and our problems since then have been primarily internal. That is, the, the decay of uh, our belief in ourselves, uh, what Solzhenitsyn called our civic courage. Yeah. 
uh, has been very noticeable, I think. Yeah, I worry about that a lot, um, that old notion of, you know, having defeated abroad, we have so much, we have adopted so much of the enemy's ideology, uh, you know, going back to that old line of uh, Leo Strauss's. And it does seem, whether it's uh, Soviet-style Marxism, maybe more, tra- more, more relevantly Mao Marxism, it, it does seem that there is a, a sympathy, uh, an interest in sympathy and pedagogy of Marxism here, approvingly, positively, that never would have even been given a tip of the hat in 1978. It's much more popular here now than it ever was back then, is, is, what, I'm, is what I'm seeing. I don't know. You're in the academy. You also could probably get a, better, uh, a different kind of glimpse of it. <clears throat> My impression is, and you know, coincidentally, I taught Karl Marx. Uh, in a in a survey class of, on political philosophy this uh, spring, just Fantastic. a few months ago, good uh, for the first time in many years, I guess. Yeah, um, and so I was able to gauge what current students know about Marx uh-huh. and what they think about Marx. Yeah. and I, I think what they know about Marx is almost nothing. Yeah, uh, I mean they simply haven't read him and don't have to think about it because communism, you know, in the old-fashioned sense at least, is not so much a problem anymore. Um, but they were fascinated by him, and they found him, <clears throat> despite their um, uh, ignorance of him in a way, they found him very familiar because the, uh, the, the, the rhetoric of the new, new left, of our current left, uh, wokeism and political correctness and so forth, um, all are created out of un, out of the Marxist uh, categories, out of the Marxist uh, web, if you Yeah, the will. playbook even, yeah, sure. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, oppressors and the press, uh, they, they get that, uh, you know, the notion that um, ideology is, is simply uh, um, a rationalization for interests that you couldn't otherwise defend, that they understand. There's a lot of Marx that goes connects very deeply, I think, to the current left and uh, and to people who are familiar with the current left, which is, unfortunately, all of us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing a lot of that, too. Chapter 2, The Destruction of the Family, The Attempt to Overcome History and Nature. I was just thinking, you said you were teaching Karl Marx. I was thinking, thinking how much Marx is taught. I want Marx taught, but only by you, Charles. Only by <laughs> you. I, I worry about everyone else well, teaching him. <laughs> This will take you back to Hugh Hewitt and Harvard. Yeah. But when, when I was a student at Harvard, I was in the most left-wing major, probably, uh, on campus, which was called Social Studies. Uh-huh. And in the fall semester, we read Karl Marx sure. for nine weeks, <laughs> nine straight weeks of Karl Marx. And so I've, I've, I've never felt I really had to you know, read a lot more of Karl Marx. Yeah. I read everything that was readable. Uh, back then. Yeah. Talk about changing history. Charles, I have to take a quick commercial break. Let's get to your current essay in the Claremont Review, Claremont Review of Books. ClaremontReviewOfBooks.com and Claremont is C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T. Charles Kessler is K-E-S-L-E-R, and I'll be right back with him. Mm-hmm. 
Professor Charles Kessler is the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, brand new edition just out, spring 2023, ClaremontReviewOfBooks.com is where to uh, get it if you don't already, or you could just go to the main website of the Claremont Institute, Claremont.org. Charles, you always write such a great opening essay. It's the thing I look forward to the most, and uh, the one titled this time is The New War Between the States. I was reading it, and I was thinking about when— Newt Gingrich uh, took over Congress in 94, the Gingrich Revolution in 94. There were all these stories about devolution and devolving power back to the states. I think the New York Times had a piece, you say you want a devolution. (laughs) Um, And I kind of thought of that as I was reading your piece that maybe this is something interesting, perhaps a legacy of Donald Trump's uh, presidency is this back and forth between the states, particularly California and um, Florida. Am I on to something? Are Are you driving at that? Yes, I mean, uh, I don't think it's been, uh, as you know, unfortunately, the Republicans didn't really accomplish a lot of devolution. Yeah. Um, but they tried, and mm-hmm. they did some. Mm-hmm. They, and, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration was pretty good on trying to respect the state on COVID uh, mandates and those issues uh, fairly recently. So there's something to it, of course. But... Um, I think that uh, the surprising thing to me is that when Trump went out of office in 2021, um, he didn't, uh, Trumpism didn't die. Right. I mean, the, the programs that he was pushing, the approach that he was taking, had a kind of second life um, in the red states, and especially in Florida and Texas, and especially as between those two, in Florida, mm-hmm. which has really been the, the leader, it seems to me, in the in the second phase of the Trumpian revolution. Yeah, and and this this has to do with the you know the, the possibilities that being a federal uh, uh, nation, a federal constitution, provides for us. I mean, there you can have you can carry on battles that temporarily, at least, you may not have won at the national level, at the state level. Mm-hmm. And you can deepen the issues. You can uh, you can explore the moral arguments that uh, you, you didn't have time for, in a way, uh, at the national level. And that's happened, it seems to me. And what we have now is this amazing back and forth between Gavin Newsom from California and and uh, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida, which a lot of other governors I think would like to get involved in as well. And it's a, it is to be sure a war of words, not an actual shooting war. Right. Um, but it it is something that is fairly unusual in American politics that you're carrying on a kind of um, national uh, political agenda through the state, mm-hmm. and they're clarifying our issues. They're improving, I think the. Uh, 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 the political understanding of citizens about what's at stake and what it really means in terms of taxes and and uh, you know COVID mandates and things like that, which really affect their lives. And so it's, it's helping, I would say, overall to move the country slightly to the right. Um, and uh, I'm not sure it may move it further to the right in the end, but uh, it's 
still too early to tell, I think. And an open question on the one thing that his uh, that that was achieved by dint of his Supreme Court nominees too, which is returning abortion to the states, right? Uh, right. Right. Yeah. That that that's that's to, that's to me an interesting one and a, and and one of course that I'm, I'm wondering if some governors would rather wish I suppose and as in the early days of COVID would rather wish they didn't have to make a decision on you know there was this back and forth early on with COVID as well where they were trying to throw this hot potato back and forth with each other uh, until they grabbed it and um, and no no yeah. that's that is quite right. Um, and, but it's also to go back even farther, like uh, in, in some ways, like the debate over slavery. Yes, yes. In the 1850s. Well, uh, I mean, that's right. the states, uh, try as they might, really couldn't simply uh, uh, ignore the issue because the issue was too um, too much at the heart of the whole country, the whole regime. Sure. And so, uh, you know, almost beside themselves. The states and the expansion of slavery into new states and into territories became the central political issue of the day. Well, that's where I want to pick up. I would have a quick break here. Uh, if I could pick up with that thought uh, on the other side and that that next to the last sentence you have, I think, or maybe it's the yeah, next to the last sentence you have in your essay, though it may sound like the 1850s, the result need not be secession. Can we pick up on that when we come right back? Absolutely. Thank you. Charles Kessler is my guest. He's the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, Professor Claremont McKenna College, uh, author of several books. Uh, I can't say enough about Crisis of the Two Constitutions, his most recent, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a privilege to have Professor Charles Kessler, my uh, longtime teacher, a teacher of mine for going on 40 years, I think, about, just about. <laughs> yeah, I think. I think maybe close. I anyway, think, yeah. I think you graduated, don't I? Uh, I know I have not yet. I have not yet. Ago. I haven't yet. I'll tell you, you, these the new Claremont Review of Books, I don't know if they're coming out faster or if I'm reading slower, Charles. <laughs> they are, <laughs> I'm not sure. I they're not coming out faster. They're not? Uh, okay. They're then I'm reading slower. Okay. I'm reading more slowly. Uh, Charles, in your essay in the new Claremont Review of Books, we're talking about – it's titled The New War Between the States, and we're talking about that, the, the, the battles, of course, between DeSantis and Newsom or California versus Florida. And though it may sound like the 1850s, the result of this process, you write, need not be secession. We do hear, however, um, particularly in conservative precincts, although in some left ones as well – not so much the word secession as words like national separation, national divorce, and things of that ilk, um, with people being so fed up with the conditions or perhaps the um, the ideologies and the governances that they don't like. And I just wonder what your thought on all that kind of talk is. Well, you you know, in a in a federal system, there's always the possibility of secession. Um, that's one of the internal fault, fault lines and, and one of the sort of classic internal disorders of a federal system. It's one, you know, the thing that Madison focused on so much in the 1787, uh, 88 period when the Constitution was under debate. Um, how to make, how to get the benefits of federalism without the, the coming to the, um, Weaknesses of it to the uh, just you know the uh, tendency to, to for the parts to fly off 
away from each other and from the center. Mm -hmm. But however, um, the advantage of today's uh, war between the states, so to speak, Mm -hmm. over the war between the states of the 1850s is that the main states are not contiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you had a, when when the North was, uh, you know, essentially right beside the South but with only a few border states in between, and major population centers like Virginia uh, and, uh, you know, Illinois were also within reach of Confederate armies. Um, that's one situation. But when you've got California as, as far on the left coast as you could get, and Florida about as far away from California as you could get, it's, it's hard for them to, to fight, to make a war of words into, into a, you know, a real war. And that's a good thing. Um, and you've got Texas, and you, you, know, you have the South, which is red, and you, but the blue states are urban, and they're sort of scattered. You've got Illinois in the middle, you've got New York up in the, uh, and, and some other states around New York, uh, up in the northeast corner. Uh, so geographically, it's hard to have a civil war uh, in anything like the way that we did have a terrible one um, in the 19th century. But it is, um, it's not impossible to have many policy fights. So you have attorney generals of red states suing <laughs> blue states. Yep. And blue state attorney generals suing red states Mm -hmm. and fighting it out at the Supreme Court, ultimately. And so there are many ways that the battle between the states can be conducted, uh, can be, you know, vicariously, almost, you might say, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, the way it's going on now, in which uh, Newsom parachutes into Florida to say some nasty things about uh, DeSantis (laughs) And the DeSantis comes to the speak at the Reagan Library in California to say, I wouldn't say nasty things. He barely mentioned him. But he did have a few uh, criticisms of Governor uh, uh, Newsom out here. So, you know, it's a, it's a lively war, but it's basically a war of words. But I think it is a kind of proxy for the national war that's going on. And so... Uh, you know, in Washington, it's going to be interesting to see how the war between the states works itself out. We already see it, as I mentioned, in in the judiciary, mm-hmm. um, as states sue one another and sue the federal government and, and back and forth. Um, but we, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the demographic trends, red states are gaining seats in the House. Right. Blue, blue states are losing. Including California, uh, right? California's going to lose Including some. California, yeah, right, first yeah. time. Yeah. Yes, California is losing, uh, lost one seat, and will lose some more in the, the next time around. Um, uh, someone predicts, uh, based on the trends, that we'll lose ultimately five more seats from California. Florida will gain four. Texas will gain four seats in the House. So the country is sorting itself out, and without resorting to any further nastiness, maybe the demo, you know demographics will uh, solve this question in the next generation, and and not later, I think, than the next generation. And 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 politically, I can see that. I I think there's a difficulty too, though, if I might, in thinking that 
it's not going to be <clears throat> a complete solution because a lot of these problems don't just come from state policies, right? They come from multinational corporations that operate in all these states, athletic associations, social media, video streaming services, and schools and school boards, right? I mean, these are parts of the problems inherent in a lot of red states. I suppose Florida is another interesting example of how to do something about that vis-a-vis the multinational corporation Disney. But you will never have a pure state, in other words, uh, a purely ideological red or blue state because of this. that's right. And you have immigration. Right, Right. and immigration. Both red and blue state. Right. Uh, And uh, it's being handled increasingly by governors, you know, in Texas, Florida, and, and elsewhere. Uh, and, and, you know, fighting by sending immigrants, <laughs> yeah, right. illegal yeah. immigrants, yeah. to the other guy, you know, sending people to Martha's Vineyard yep. uh, and to uh, Washington and New York and other places to to uh, let them have a taste of their own medicine. Yeah. No, that's right. And uh, and, 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 it's, and and it's nothing short of a of great amusement to see the reactions of these, uh, what were they, sanctuary cities, which, by the way, speaking of secession, I, I've been, I, I take to calling nullification cities. That's really what they're doing, aren't they? Isn't it, wouldn't that be a more fair and accurate description of vi- the violation of federal law to call them nullif- uh, and, and we do have, you know, there is a possibility uh, within uh, the existing system for yeah. some really explosive uh, controversies between the states. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we have the affirmative action cases still, That's right. uh, which have been decided by this current court, but it hasn't yet released that decision. They're teasing us, and uh, it may be the last one to come out in mid-June. Yep. Uh, but that's a, that's the kind of decision, uh, as 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 was Dobbs repealing a Roe v. Wade, yep. where you could see that California, I mean, really does take a nullification. Yep. Uh, uh, approach to it, and where you could see, uh, you know, a future president uh, uh, thinking at least about sending the 101st Airborne yeah, right, to right. California. It had been done before. Uh, or yeah, to Florida, yeah. depending on which party we're, right. has the president, exactly. to enforce, you know, federal law, or at least federal court decisions. Charles Kessler, bless you and thank you. You are a prize. Your Claremont Review of Books is a treasure, and it's always good catching up with you, sir. Thank you so much, Seth. Always great talking to you. We'll be in touch. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. Inflation, a possible recession, stock market volatility, bank failures. Why refi, as you heard Larry talking about during the break, has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, a portfolio where you can compound your monthly income, you can turn it on or off, whatever you choose, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio that Y-Refi is offering. They're based locally. They'd love you to stop by their offices. I encourage you to. They're right on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. They just like talking about what it is that they do. And when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can as well. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888 888- 
Y-Refi 34, 888-Y-Refi 34. Just thinking about that conversation with Charles that uh, we were wrapping up in the last segment and these conversations that do arise on occasion that talk about a national divorce or a separation, a national separation, and the media usually pounces on it. But, you know, if divorce there be, there's usually, usually a party that violated the oaths or the vows. And it's worth asking what side, what movement, what party has allowed for and tolerated the renunciation of vows and oaths of this country? Anyone remember the physical shredding of a United States president's State of the Union as if it were merely the document of party of one party? What side, what movement, what party allowed for and tolerated and defended the separation of people by race in violation of every ethos, the long march of civil rights in such cases as Brown versus Board of Education established? What side, what movement, what party allowed for and tolerated and defended the reestablishment of the doctor, doctrine of separate but equal? What side, what movement, what party has allowed for, tolerated, and defended the notion that our Constitution should tolerate castes here and should not be colorblind? What side, what movement, what party has allowed for and tolerated and defended the divorce, if you will, of parental authority over their children when it comes to something as radical as changing a child's sex or gender? We could go down a long list, but if it's a divorce people are talking about, think about the further analog of the marriage. And if one party continually breaks wedding vows, engages in physical abuse, abandonment of affection and infidelities, it would be considered blaming the victim to blame those who raised the issue of divorce, would it not? Sam Stone coming right up. We'll be right back. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.